Week seven, day three, delight in the law of the Lord. My name is AJ Venegas. I'm the community groups coordinator here at Three Crosses. And my name is Kelly Kaufman. I'm the operations manager at Cafe Four. And we had the tremendous privilege of being able to co-edit this entire project. So welcome. Uh, Kelly, over the last two episodes, we've seen how God hears our cries when we're lost. Uh, and hopefully you as a listener were reminded about how God enters into our world to give his own life for our sins so that we too can embark on a journey of deliverance led by him. And when we for- forget this sort of journey, we can hang on to the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms are a great collection to turn to because in them we have we can take a step into the shoes of the Israelites and remember the journey of the Exodus. They too were delivered from captivity and they were brought into the promised land. And so just like the Exodus story back then, God is willing and able to intervene on our behalf in this world as opposed to the lifeless idols all around us. And so for that, we praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. Today, we have the privilege of learning more about how God proactively reminds Israel of their own journey from captivity to freedom. Now, in this conversation, we have to keep in mind that David could only hope for the coming Messiah and what we know as the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Since he was waiting for those things, David still rejoiced that he could meet with God. And so we looked at Psalm 19 earlier in the series and we learned that David met God through his natural revelation in creation. And so in the series, we looked at Psalm 19. We learned that David met God through his natural revelation in creation and his special revelation in what we have been calling the law of the Lord. Which brings us to today. Uh, And here we are, a hundred chapters later, still encouraging people to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. And so with that, let's dive into this important journey, Psalm 119, through God's word found right at the heart of book five. Psalm 119, 33 through 40. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things and preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, preserve my life. Today we get to focus on the longest chapter in the Bible. I bet you'll never guess what it's talking about. How delightful the Bible is and how applicable it is. So yeah, we're talking about Psalm 119. We think it was probably written by David. It's very long. It's split up into 22 units and each unit starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So for example, if it had originally been written in English, each of the eight verses in each stanza would start with a word that begins with the letter A. And then the next section would consist of another set of verses beginning with the letter B, and the next one with C, and so on and so on. But of course, this was about 1000 BC and it was written in Hebrew, so it's not like super obvious when we read it that that was the case. So what we're supposed to understand is that someone went way, way, way out of their way to make sure everyone stopped and meditated on this collection. This psalm was probably written in pieces over a long period of time and then compiled. 
And I love that because it draws out for me two different things. Number one, that this writer was long-term excited about the word of God over his journey. Like he was writing about how much he delighted it his whole life. Or number two, maybe he actually wasn't always long-term super excited about it, but he always knew that he needed to be reminded of its value. We know that David went through some really tough things in his life, but he still returned to acknowledge the value of the word of God, even in his saddest times. And this is why Psalm 19 is so critical to me in my own life and my own relationship with God. I am not always every day in every life stage passionate about reading God's word. But the writer here reminds me that this, this recognition of its value and its usefulness and its infallibility, this should be my resting state. Even if I'm not jumping up and down and passionate about it, I might not feel like reading the Bible. I might feel too tired in that moment. I might be unhappy with the way my life looks right now. But Psalm 119 can help me remember what my priorities are. The writer here reminds me that regardless of how I feel, God's word is still everything. So as we were preparing this section, we were looking at some passages to pick out of this incredibly huge book. And so, Kelly, did you happen to know that one of my college numbers was number 17? I did not know that. So we'll be reading Psalm 119, starting in verse 17 to start us off. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed, those who stray from your commands. Remove from me their scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. The rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. So Psalm 119 is all about the word of God, right? It uses all these different words and phrases to discuss it. Commandments, statutes, precepts, testimonies, word, law, judgments, promises. All these words refer to the words of the Lord that were given to his people and his prophets. So what exactly is this law that he's so pumped about? AJ, can you tell us about what words this writer would have been referring to? Yeah, that's a a really good question. Um, I think... First of all, it's a powerful question, but the law, I feel like, can be described using three different categories, um, each one that kind of builds on top of each other. And so the first category, when we talk about the law of the Lord, you as a listener may be thinking already of those Old Testament commands and laws that you've run across in your scripture reading. And if you're thinking that, you're you're right. If you don't know what these are already, uh, these are the 613 laws that include things like the Ten Commandments, and the more difficult laws to grasp, you know, um, they're really challenging. Stonings that seem over the top, prohibitions of clothes made from multiple fabric or crop varieties in one field. Um, there's obviously the famous dietary laws that just seem cruel. I mean, Kelly, no bacon or shellfish. That's I can't crazy. do it, man. I can't do it. <laughs> and so how could the author claim that these type of laws are actually good? Sh- shouldn't the Psalm say, oh Lord, how weird are your commandments? (laughs) Yet, when we understand what God is trying to do in the context of Israel's journey, I think things start to get a little bit more clear with these crazy laws. But before we jump in, Kelly, I have some pop trivia for you. Did you know that in Kentucky, it is illegal to carry ice cream in your pocket? (laughs) 
What? Why would you even do that? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Crazy laws. How about this one? In Arizona, it is still against the law for you to put your donkey to sleep in a bathtub. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some crazy laws. But I think this goes to the point. Today, these laws seem extremely silly to us. But to someone in Kentucky in the early 1900s, who had their horse stolen by a thief who tempted the horse with ice cream in his pocket, oh. this law would have been good. Similarly, in 1924, the state of Arizona would have saved just an incredible amount of resources if they had a dam that broke and it swept away a man's property. And guess what was in his bathtub? A donkey. <laughs> and so they spent all these man hours trying to save this donkey. And so it goes to show you that in the context, these laws are actually good. You know, in Kentucky, we know that ice cream was preventing theft, actually. In Arizona, we saw how donkeys in bathtubs were advocating just safety and resource management and good stewardship of what we've actually been given. So the laws, although they may seem silly, they brought about a good, just, and more efficient society. But that's just it, isn't it? It's ancient Israel was not our society. So how can we know that the Old Testament laws were good? So much like we did with Arizona and Kentucky, our job as readers today is to uncover these same timeless principles and the heart behind Israel's 613 laws. So some are straightforward, others are a lot harder to find. I think in general, just a great question to ask when you run across these laws are, why did this law actually need to become a law? What we, what we do know is that God gave these explicit laws in direct opposition to the Egyptians, where they came from, the place that they were just in slavery, as well as the Canaanites. So that's the place they were actually going. And you can find that in Leviticus 18.3. The Canaanites, for example, were serving idols like Molech. And if you've never heard of Molech, sacrifices to Molech actually required really loud noises, drums, other instruments, so that parents and the surrounding society would not be able to hear the screams of their little children as they would burn in Molech's arms. Oh my gosh, yikes. So the clothes they wore, the way they planted crops, everything that they ate sent a message. It revealed who their God was going to be. Would they look back to the Egyptian customs? Would they succumb to the Canaanite culture? And so it's in these contexts we receive God's law. And so if we continue to dig deep and, and deep into this context idea, um, like we do with all the other laws, like the Kentucky one, the Arizona one, we, we find that God was looking to develop a holy, set-apart nation of priests for his service. So God's law brought a holy, good, just, more efficient society. And in their time, these laws were good. In our time, we can be confident then that the heart behind these laws is good. Okay, I see. It makes a lot of sense when you put it in context like that. Yeah, the second thing that I wanted to point out is that when the psalmist says the word law, he's using the Hebrew word Torah. And the Torah is often a word that is used to refer to the first five books of Moses. And so in these books, we remember that God does not, he doesn't just give a list of these 613 rules, but he infuses them into the story of mankind itself, ultimately winding up focusing on Israel's story. And so we have a record of Israel's patriarchs who all fell short of God's standard of holiness. We also have a record of miracles that God accomplished in spite of their failure. 
And so the entire Torah is good because it includes these laws and it includes the history of a God who enters into a covenant. In other words, a promise relationship with his people, even though they fail. And so building on that, the third thing I want to say about the law, I want to argue today that when the psalmist is referring to the law of the Lord, you could point to the entirety of scripture. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I think when it says fulfill the law, it means that Jesus, God's word made flesh, is the personification of everything that is good about God's law. In other words, Jesus followed God's law perfectly. He's like the model citizen of God's kingdom. His heart and deeds all felt in alignment. And what resulted was a love like we have never seen. And this is only possible by following the law of the Lord that's good. Since we know that all scriptures in the Old Testament actually point to him, the Gospels describe his ministry and the New Testament letters explain the significance of Jesus' life. I think that the law of the Lord can actually be all of scripture, God's inspired word. Okay, so on this subject of God's law, let's play a game. So let's look at uh, Psalm 119, and AJ, I want you to pick a number between 1 and 176. Oh man, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, I think since we went with my previous playing number, I think I'll pull out one of those again. I think I wore number 51, so okay. let's choose 51. Okay, let's open up to verse 51, and I want to see how long you can read in this chapter until you come across a mention of the law or rules or precepts or statutes or one of those words of God. Great, I love it. Sounds fun. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away. There it is. From your law. There it is. <laughs> That's what, like 10 words or yeah, something? Cool. Something okay. Like um, okay. Pick another random number. All right, great. Um, I'm out of baseball numbers. Uh, maybe 135. <laughs> let's go with 135. Okay, um, let's do this again. Let's see how far we get before we get one of those mentions of the rules of God. Great. I can already see it. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. There it is. There it is. It's in basically every single verse in this chapter. This guy is pumped about the law of God. So if we believe that the law of God is good, like this guy is, man, he just wants to talk about it all the time. It's like when a person is so excited about something that that's all they seem to talk about and it can like kind of get annoying, you know? <laughs> like if your little kid's latest thing is Marvel and you have to be like, no talking about superheroes at the dinner table because you're sick of hearing about it all day. Or like when a teenager, or maybe when you were a teenager yourself, like just starts talking to somebody they like and they spend hours texting them or like on the phone with them and your parents are like, please, there are other things in life but you're just so focused on this one thing that it's all you can really see. Or like, I know we all have friends that like you see on like Instagram and they're all like on this dieting trend or fitness trend and it's all they post about and it always comes up in your conversations with them and it's like not a bad thing, but it does make you laugh a little. <laughs> uh, this guy loves the law of the Lord, like the stereotypical vegans and crossfitters and like little kids love superheroes all in one. 
And that's great. This is a reminder that we should and we're allowed to be passionate about it, to give our lives to it. It's infallible. It's useful in every situation. It illuminates the right path for us on our journey. It both reveals the wisdom of God and it is God speaking to us. This is all stuff that's worth being passionate about. But also, even if we don't exactly share his zeal, like bouncing off the walls and posting about it all the time passionately, this is a good reminder that the word is still important whether we love it or not. Bible reading can be hard. It's often inconsistent. We hear about people or even know people who read it every day, but for so many of us, we don't have this habit. And sometimes you read and you're less than delighted and you're actually more bored or zoned out. And this passage isn't there to like rub our faces in the fact that David loved it, but rather it's a call to us to adopt that attitude or step into that attitude or remember that even if we don't feel happy about it, it is still important. Yeah, I love that observation about the difficulties of reading scriptures. You know, one of the ways I found sort of a rejuvenated energy with reading the law of the Lord and reading scriptures is actually reading the Bible in order to track stories. So here's some more trivia for you. Kelly, did you know that the Bible was actually meant to be read aloud on different scrolls? Consider this, a, a contested issue in the early Christian church, probably around the second or third century, was whether or not to maintain scrolls or to switch to what we know as like the traditional hardcover bound book that we know of, it's called a codex. Here's a fun question to think about as a listener. Do you think we actually lost something by moving from scrolls to a traditional hardcover book? Or consider this one, Kelly. With this new codex hardcover format, we also didn't have chapters or verse numbers until the 12th and 13th century. Another great question. What do you think we lost or gained with these changes, with these chapters, with these verse numbers? Oh, wow. That's actually, that's... That's a game changer. Yeah, because I think, I think I believe that it's actually caused me to think deeper about what the authors are trying to do. And I think this has given me this new passion for the scriptures because instead of looking for chapter and verse number, I'm now trying to track stories. And so I'll actually read until I finish a story. Then I'll track that story to remember it, sort of put it in my back pocket. And then I'm going to move on to the next story. And what I've found in reading like this is that new patterns begin to emerge that I wouldn't have seen if I stopped at a specific verse number or chapter number. And so if I could break the proverbial fourth wall for a moment and speak to you listeners, I don't know what this is going to mean for you and the way you read the Bible. But for me, the reason I want to grow in my delight in the Torah and the ability to meditate on it day and night is because if you read the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament this way, you'll begin to see, especially in the Old Testament characters, failure after failure after failure. And you just leave longing for this second Moses. If only we had someone who could fulfill that law. If only we had a better David. I really believe it. It truly elevates the need for our Messiah when we back up and we read the scriptures for stories. Oh, definitely. Like all of this focus on the word of God leads us to his most important promise that is overarching and through all. That even though our sin separates us from his perfection, he made a way for us to bridge that gap by sending his perfect son to take our place. So the law that this author talks about 
includes so many small bits of guidance on how to live in a way that would please the Lord and so many words from prophets on how to recognize God's son when he came to sacrifice himself for us. So in a very real way, this whole chapter and also our whole Old Testament is pointing us towards Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. And these bits of guidance on how to live and how to create a life that pleases the Lord. This chapter is reminding us that we should exercise our salvation through a daily dedication to what pleases God. Jesus paid it all, and our response should be to follow God's guidance in all situations. Yeah, at this point, you might be wondering, you know, the law, the law of the Lord, we've been talking about that a lot. It's been fulfilled by Jesus, and a new covenant has been made with Jesus. So why do I actually need to care about the Old Testament law today? And so hopefully our discussion today in Psalm 119 has given you a good reason to begin rediscovering the law of the Lord in the Torah. If you'd like to explore different resources, I'd encourage you to reach out. Let's continue this conversation. It's a great one. And if I could summarize my response in, in one sentence to that um, challenge of why should we care about the Old Testament and the law of the Lord, it would be this. I think we should care about the law of the Lord because as Paul says, it shows us what sin is. It reveals God's standard of good in the context in which it was given. And it all points to this model citizen named Jesus. And so as we explore the law, we get to, to see God's heart on display. And ultimately we see God's heart in full display in the person of Jesus. Jesus shows us how to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. That's in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. He shows us how to love our neighbor as ourselves, Leviticus 19, 18. And so if you're a Christian today, the Holy Spirit that, that dwelt fully in Jesus Christ now dwells in you and has written the law on your heart. Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel 36, 26, Hebrews 8, 10, it's all over the place. The law has been written on your heart. God's good law is embedded in you. And the Spirit has now given you the power to become a part of that holy priesthood that, that God was creating in the Old Testament. Through the Spirit, you now embody God's good law. On a personal note, in this passage, one of my favorite verses is verse 111. It goes like this. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They're the joy of my heart. I love thinking about the word of God as my heritage. Because heritage makes me think about what is passed down of family history and the recipes and stories and tools and proud moments that we receive from the people that came before us. It's beautiful for me to claim the word of the Lord as my heritage, that I can call upon the wisdom and the stories and the guidance in there and claim it as something that is part of me. It says in Acts that we were heirs of the prophets. Ephesians 1.5 says that we have been adopted into God's family. And in Romans 8 that we are co-heirs with Christ. We've been adopted by God into his family. And our heritage, the heritage that we receive, is the words and the stories and the guidance of all the writers in the Bible that came before us. So knowing the law and having the law is actually so precious. But the relationship with the one that fulfills the law, that's the ultimate thing. Psalm 119 reminds us that the law is so important and that the law is good and worthy of delight and it's so important and it ought to be meditated on. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is worthy of being followed and trusted. He is 
worth it. And so in your groups, as you're listening to this, here's an experiment to try. From now until the end of the series, or even until the end of your lives, you can pick one of the 22 sections in Psalm 119 and pick it at random and you can glance over it. As you do this, recognize that the Hebrew letter that's inscribed at the top of the section is actually the beginning of each verse. I think that's so cool. As you're reading it, you can then survey the author's relationship to the word. He delights in it. And then ask yourself, what is your own personal relationship with the law of the Lord, with the word of God and with Jesus? Thanks for listening to our conversation today about Psalm 119. It was so cool to dive in and learn more and then just discuss it with someone. Yeah, Kelly, I don't know about you, but it's been one of my privileges to be able to edit this and see everybody's entries and create something that is a narrative story of what the Psalms is trying to do. Because I think when we take a step back and we take a look at what the Psalmist is trying to do, it's just amazing things come to light. So we hope you've enjoyed this. I know it's been a privilege and it's been really fun. Kelly, thanks so much for helping out editing. It's been really yeah, it's been a wonderful opportunity to be involved in and to see just the whole trajectory of the book of Psalms. And I know I've been so blessed by getting to read so many of these entries and we just really hope that you've been blessed by this as well. Yeah, so we're not done yet. And so we got a little bit more to go. So stay tuned for tomorrow and uh, we hope that you're enjoying your journey through the Psalms. Mm-hmm.